Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT thriller. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Now entered the House of Mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. One hundred two point three FM Riverside and one hundred five zero AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren. Mr. Dave Martino is back. I am back. And so, did you did you enjoy your karate this last weekend? 
Oh, the weekend before la uh, the, the, last. Know, last week, yeah. Yeah, it's all You're a blur. Honest. I did. Yeah, and you became the champion of <laughs> North America. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. We'll call I, it that. I, it was just I, a seminar. <laughs> champion. Champion eater. Of the, well, uh, that that yeah. goes without saying. Especially at the buffet. Exactly. And they're and, open again. And, well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. I bet you're thrilled. I am. <laughs> well, anyway, hopefully this week is not as crazy as last week. Okay? Let's yes. just keep it civil. Okay? No, no more getting out of hand. Yep. No more police being called. No. No more of that stuff. Okay? No more streaking. Yeah, no. Nope. <laughs> uh, well, now, speaking of streaking. We have our first guest this week is a fantasy author. So that's why, you know, the streaking, not that he streaks. It's just that you streaking would be a fantasy. Yes. Maybe a, an evil fantasy. Nightmare. So, a nightmare. And he's got another, uh, he's, he's a best-selling fantasy author here. So this is, uh, you know, the real deal here. And so he's got a new book out, Malevolent 7, and it's Mr. Sebastian DeCastell. Thank you for being here. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here and... Hear all about your fantasy of Dave streaking. <laughs> well, that's why it's an evil fantasy. It's not it's, a good fantasy. All the best fantasies are evil, aren't they? I don't know. Are they? Is that is that what makes a fantasy uh, click in the world? Is that what people like? Is the evil in in the fantasy? I think. Uh, well, it's funny because Malevolent Seven is is very much a, a fantasy novel about seven anti-heroes who have done some terrible things in their past and are mostly convinced that they're largely irredeemable. Uh, so I think we do like to uh, explore kind of the range of, of human behavior uh, and fantasy is a good place to do that because it doesn't always, it doesn't always sort of trigger um, the same um, experience, you know, the sort of literal experiences that people have had, right? It's the, you know, there's a difference between somebody, you know, a, a story where a character, you know, runs into somebody with a horse uh, versus, uh, you know, a modern book where somebody, you know, uh, gets drunk and, and crashes a car into somebody else's car because we, we have such a visceral connection to the things that happen, you know, in our world. So, yeah, I think I think fantasy does um, give an opportunity for us to explore darkness in in a way that is safe both from you know, sort of directly uh, uh, adversely affecting us, um, but also can kind of get past the filter of our sort of, uh, you know, what we would call meta narrative notions of like, you no, know, you can never allow a character who did X, Y, or Z to be redeemed. Um, which if that were the case, you know, Malevolent 7 would be an impossible book to write because it has a bunch of characters who are on, you know, who think that they can't be redeemed, but we sort of get a chance to see what happens when they try. So it's just, it's just part of the, a passive aggressive behavior like we want the evil in the book but we don't want them to win right we want them to lose still i think i think it can be in in the case of um in the case of malevolent seven i mean it's really a book about uh seven uh war mages or mercenary mages who are called wondrists in, in this book and they basically sell their spells to the highest bidder um and unfortunately the highest bidder is usually kind of a jerk um and they you know, these are, are people who, who don't think of themselves as, as having any sort of redeemable qualities. They just view the world as one kind of war after another, and they're just, you know, there to survive as best they can. Um, but unfortunately for them, they, they end up taking a job that uh, turns out to be part of a conspiracy that, uh, that could enslave all of humanity, and all of a sudden these characters who are determined not to be heroes um, discover, as I think we all do sometimes, that uh, even the worst of us have to sometimes step up and be just a little bit heroic. So I think that's kind of, I think that's a, a pretty integral part for us, just as human beings, to periodically explore is, is the notion that we like to divide everyone up into good people and bad people. But uh, when we do that, we, we sort of deny ourselves, like our, as, a, as a collective humanity, we, we deny ourselves a lot of people we might actually need. You know, sometimes, sometimes you need the firefighter uh, to come to your house, even though they believe things that you absolutely despise, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, well how, how do you keep your anti-heroes likable to the reader? Um, did you find that a difficult balance? I didn't with this book, partly because I never really set out to 
to sort of write a character as, okay, they are going to be this, or I'm going to have the audience judge them this way. Uh, you know, the only way you can write a villain is, and I'm sure you know, we've all seen this before, it, you have to write them as if they're the hero of their own story, um, and it's just that we don't happen to understand at first why why they're doing what they're doing. So I always sort of try to write characters from the standpoint of let's just keep exploring what's inside them. Uh, and the more that you do that, you know, even with a villainous character, the more inevitably that we'll start to empathize with them. We might still go, well, that was a terrible decision to make after, after you know, w losing your father in a combine accident. Um, <laughs> but you, but we, but we sort of go, but I understand that feeling. And one of the things about one of the reasons I think there was a, a real pushback in the early two thousands. Uh, against the sort of classic heroic fantasy, and I'm a big fan of heroic fantasy, but there was a sort of a pushback of it was because when you have these characters whose every impulse is intrinsically noble, uh, what is there for us as the average, you know, schlubs that we are to, to relate to and go, okay, but my problem isn't that uh, there's an evil wizard, but it's okay because I'm so brave that I'll just run into it. My problem is that I tend to you know, lie and hide and cower as much as possible. <laughs> and I want to know how I get out of that. And that's what I think characters with more gray to them give us, right? They give us a sense of whether they are worse than ourselves or slightly better than ourselves. They give us a chance to say, you know, maybe I could try that approach or I'm going to, you know, I see what's happening to that character and they're doing exactly what I would do in that situation. Maybe I should try something new. Well, how do you create your characters? How do you come up with these evil characters? Well, I almost always work the same way, which is, um, you know, fantasy is kind of an interesting field because a lot of people imagine that the way that you create a fantasy novel is first you create a world um, with all of its strange geography and its magic systems and its cultures and its history. And, you know, you just sort of write these encyclopedias, atlases and, and, and history tomes. Uh, and then you set a story inside of it. And I never work that way. I start with a main character. I start with something that is interesting to me about them. And, and in a, in a metaphorical sense, I start them in a, in a dark cave, uh, and I give them a flashlight. And the only things I write about or, or even imagine is whatever's going to be in the beam of that flashlight. Um, so in this case, I started with a character named Cade Ombra, who is himself a wondrous. So he's a, he's a mercenary. Mage, he's in the middle of a job that is, um, you know, fairly awful. Both sides are kind of awful, but he's actually working for what he thinks of as the worst side. And he's just struggling through this process to try and hang on to whatever little bits of his soul are, are still left, you know, to just to, to pull back from the, the worst excesses of what's going on. But he knows that that's not a workable way um, to be sort of a viable human being. And so what then happens is I then build, I then functionally create every other character, every other setting, every other, you know, shirt sleeve to, to be something that creates conflict and challenge for that character. So his best friend, for example, his only friend, really, um, who, who we meet, you know, with Cade on, on page one, um, is what's called a, a, a tempestoral mage. So a, a mage who draws their power from this realm that basically is all destructive energies, lightning, you know, thunder, fire, um, and who absolutely does not give a crap or seemingly doesn't give a crap about any of these sort of petty moral concerns. And so um, he can be, uh, this character Corrigan can be bombastic and battle-hardened and just, you know, having the best time while blowing up castle walls. And Kate is stuck in this position of going, crap, this is like my only friend. And, and he's just as awful as everybody else. What does that mean? What, do, you know, what am I going to do next? And so all the way along, every character we meet of the Malevolent Seven, who are, you know, seven of the most messed up, broken mages, I think, ever put to page, um, each one of them challenges them in a different way. Uh, so I build out from that. I always start from the character who is, you know, who is at the center of the story. And, um, and, and that's the way that you will always get, for me as a writer, that's how you'll always get an interesting cast, a cast of very diverse personalities. It's also the way that your villains 
um, become, you know, can gain texture through, through every, uh, encounter. So for example, in, in Trader's Blade, which was the, the my first, uh, swashbuckling fantasy novel, the first book in the Great Coats Quartet, you know, we, we encounter this Duke, Duke Gillard, who is everything Falcio, the main character of the Great Coats, despises, right? He, he seems like he's everything he hates. But in book two, um, hating someone, having somebody be everything that you, you, you think is wrong with the world is a very comfortable place to be, isn't it? And so I, um, so in that book, all of a sudden he starts to see another side of Gillard because he, he encounters Gillard's, uh, young son who happens to be a huge admirer of Falcio. And so, you know, every step of the way, you, as long as you're constantly building characters that challenge your main character, you're going to get that sense of depth. I don't know how well that answered your question, but it was very long, so that's good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so when you've got this um, world building as well as your character building, have you ever been to a point where you were, let's say, halfway through and got stuck and didn't know where to go? Halfway through, stuck and not knowing where to go is my default position <laughs> as a writer. <laughs> that is my natural state. You know how, how how people have like resting scowl face or or something yeah. like that. I I have resting writer's block. It's my it's my default position as a writer. Um, it is not fortunately a, a bad place to be when you get stuck. It, you know, so you know, let's take an example. You've sort of built out some kind of a a, a very formal sort of magic system. You know, Malevolent Seven. Um, Malevolent Seven is partly a book where I decided I was just going to go crazy and write whatever the hell I wanted, and I didn't care what anybody was going to think because I'd just come off finishing a, a six-book um, young adult fantasy series called Spellslinger, which I adore, and I loved writing those books, but there's all these things you can't do because it's young adult, most mostly involving swearing. Um, so the Malevolent uh, Seven has, you know, more swear words per page, I think, than almost any novel uh, put to print. Um, but I also wanted to go, you know what, I'm not going to explain how different magic systems work, although I ended up doing that anyway. But I, I just, I, there, were, there are 12 different magic systems in this book. And you'll often reach a point where you've done all these things that felt really fun and exciting at the time. And then you go, oh, crap, now I'm stuck. There's this thing that can't possibly work given this or that, that you, know, you just don't know what to do next. And when that happens, that's actually when you're forced to come up with something really clever. Right. Because it, it's not because if it looks to you like, OK, well, given everything we we know about how magic works, there's no way this is going to work. And you know that if you just go, oh, haha, the rules are different than we thought, that's going to flop with readers. <laughs> um, but you and the reader are in the exact same position at that moment of going, how the heck is this going to work? And so then, you know, you 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 have to really challenge your creativity and your ingenuity. But when you find the solution to that, boy, does it ever feel great. Right. Like because then because then you as the writer are going, oh, my God, yeah, that works like that's that makes it all make sense. And then it suddenly feels like it was planned all the way along. And and the reader, when the readers are like, wow, the, you know, this is so great. Like, I didn't see it coming. But then, yeah, it, it, this was the only way it could work. So that's usually what happens. Well, do you build your own magical systems or um, do, you, do you draw from historical sources to, to create them? I almost always build my own magical systems because, uh, although I'm, you know, without doubt, you know, you can go through any modern fantasy and go and look at any magic system and go, oh, you know, I can see parallels with this other literary source or this um, historical source. I mostly try to derive magic systems from things that either for me make sense um, or that have kind of a tactile connection to the world. You know, like I've never created spoon magic, but, um, but I'm very likely to at some point because I think it's very easy for a reader to imagine what it's like to hold a spoon in your hand. And we've all, a lot of us, I think, have seen those old weird spoon collectible collections somebody's grandparents had where the, 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 the bottom end of the spoon has some emblem on it or things. And so it's, so I look for, I look for ways of making magic as tactile as possible. In the case of Malevolent 7, um, I, I sort of followed on a principle that I've always thought is one of the only ways that magic can possibly ever make sense, which is the notion that our universe has physical laws. One of the things that, you know, um, physicists uh, have been speculating for a long time is that uh, other other universes, if if we if we live in a sort of a multiverse, will naturally ha will not just have different physical space and different history and things like that, 
they will likely have different actual physical laws. And so my notion with the malevolent seven is um, that fundamentally what magic is, is when, uh, is when someone m momentarily breaches the, the, the veil between the, our, the mortal realm and one of these other universes where the laws of physics work differently and those laws momentarily leak through. Because we don't really know what would happen if you did breach the veil between, you know, a, a world where, um, you know, uh, you know, thunder came uh, after lightning, <laughs> and one where thunder came before lightning. We don't know kind of which rules would would necessarily dominate. And so, um, so magic, a spell, is basically when you breach the plane. And so each of these, uh, e you know, every wonderist in in the book um, is attuned to a, a particular realm, and so. Um, you know, one of the realms, uh, so, you know, I mentioned the tempestoral realm, um, but there's also the, the infernal realm, which happens to be occupied by beings who can sort of farm out spells, if you will. Um, there's another realm that's the totemic realm where, um, biological organisms like animals exist as conceptual forms. And so a totemicist, a wondrist who draws spells from there can actually, um, you know, derive the attributes of a certain type of animal. So we have a, a, a swashbuckling, heroic, handsome mage called Aridaeus in this book who happens to be a rat mage uh, and will pontificate all day long on how rats are the noblest creatures of the universe. But fundamentally what's happening is, regardless of what type of magic, it's basically just a breach between the mortal realm and, and that realm or the, that, you know, the two universes. And so that, those other laws of physics momentarily break through. And, um, and that as a kind of a, uh, as a fundamental sort of uh, underpinning of a, of a magic system, um, can forgive a whole lot of sins, which is, I think, why I picked it. Are you ever surprised sometimes by what the, the readers will pick out in a book? Like when you're telling a story like this one, you, you kind of have your, all the things that happen in the world and the magic and all the stuff going on. But sometimes do readers um, bring out something or notice something that you didn't in yourself, even though you wrote it? Inevitably. Um, and there's, there's two kinds of contexts where that happens. I always, I always think of um, what I think of as sort of true reading. Uh, and true reading is where you are just reading the book and you are, ex you are basically creating the story, right? Because the, the book itself is just, you know, black marks on pages and or on, uh, on an e-reader. And, you know, 99.99% of all things that are happening are not being written about or described. You know, you, you, when, when they, you know, in a, if you're in a James Patterson novel and it says, you know, and they walked into the courtroom, he'll almost never describe the courtroom. You're building the courtroom in your head. And so when people do that, they're, they're all basically going to read a different version of the novel because they're going to create a different story in their head. And that story is the intersection between between the sort of the written text and their own experience. Uh, and so, yeah, I'll often get. I remember. I remember one time I wrote this book called Saint's Blood, which was the third Great Coats novel a few years ago, and it had this kind of underpinning about how the gods. Um, basically, it, the, there's a line in the book that says the first prayer came before the first god. And so it basically says, like, in this world, um, gods are a manifestation of, of faith, right? And so, in a sense, we get the gods we deserve, which is sometimes, you know, not a good thing. And I remember talking to my editor, the, the inimitable Joe Fletcher, um, who's just a legend in, in the field, and saying, you know, are, are, are Christians going to be troubled by this? Um, some of them, and because it's got a very, because also there's, you know, there's this attempt to, to murder off all the gods and, and create one um, monotheistic god. Um, and she said, well, I'm a Christian and I don't mind. So, and I thought, okay, well, that's not so bad. But then I remember later getting, I got a, a letter from a fan. I get, I get a fair amount of mail from, from readers and, and, um, and this guy was so funny. He said, you know, and I love this book and I love your writing because I see that you are a Christian man like me and you see how we must uh, avoid the false gods and, and, and find the true God. And he, so he, what he read in my novel written by a guy who's, you know, basically an atheist. What he read was a kind of allegory for, um, you know, a sort of, I don't know, revelations kind of, kind of story. And, and I think that's terrific, right? Because, you know, you, you want your books to be things that, that help people kind of come alive in, in their own imaginations, right? I don't need them. I'm not trying to produce, uh, you know, a hundred thousand clones 
of Sebastian DeCastell, and, and as my wife can attest, that would be the worst of all possible outcomes. Um, I'm trying to, I'm trying to write things so that people can have the same experience I have when, when I read a book that I love, which is all of a sudden the world just seems vastly bigger and vastly more interesting than it did before. Yeah, but also it creates a lot of imagination in people, right? Because it's, you know, he's taking it a different way and he's also saw you in a different light than what you really are, perhaps. Yeah, and I think, but, you know, and what he's also hopefully seeing is underneath all of the labels we put on things, whether, you know, whether it's about religion or politics or something else, is a sense of, hey, I feel like there's a connection between me and this other person. And the fact that we might believe very radically different things in no way, um, in no way diminishes that. I mean, that's, that's the, I mean, I would argue that that's the challenge of our century, right, is to see each other and go, yeah, almost everything you believe bothers me, and the, the extension of everything you believe put into practice is even worse, and yet somehow we are, there are things about you that are in me and, and me and you, and so, you know, we're going to have to kind of get to know each other and figure this out. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's what you're always aiming for. I've always maintained that the, the job of a, of a novel isn't to, um, isn't to convert people to your way of thinking. I mean, I, I have a very particular way of thinking. You know, I'm, I, I believe in idealism. I, I believe in friendship as a, as a fundamentally redemptive force. I have a lot of things I, I believe in. But when somebody writes, um, you know, one, one of the questions you get a lot as a novelist is, you know, what do you do when you get like a really bad one star review or something? And, and I would say, you know, when somebody writes, uh, you know, a six-page scathing one-star review about how you're the worst author who ever lived and your book is a crime against humanity, you know, when you don't, when I don't like a book, when you don't like a book, I'm pretty sure we don't finish it, we put it down. And if we finish it and we hated it, we just put it away and we never think about it again. When someone goes to that trouble and sits for three nights writing the most scathing review they can, what it means is they've had a lot of pain inside of them. They've had a lot of anxiety. They've had a lot of anger. They've had a lot of whatever inside them, and they haven't had a way to get it out. And that book, for whatever reason, has given them the language to be able to talk about what's been bothering them. And no, it's not the book itself, but it doesn't matter because the book gave them the language. So, you know, you always, when I see one of those, I always think, wow, well, there's somebody I really helped out. Well, there you go. You see, you're out there doing, doing God's work. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if there were a God, I would be doing their work. You'd be doing their work, you see, and you don't even know it. See, that's, that's what a great life. Exactly. Hey, listen, so violence. Yeah. Um, violence on the page and, and, and action and stuff. Are you aware of it? Are you conscious of it? Are you thinking about how you're going to write something that is, let's say, aggressive or violent for people to read? Are you trying to be a little bit less, you know, aggressive in certain matters, or does it matter to you? Do you just just write it, or are you thinking about the reader? I just I I just write it because I'm just always looking for drama, right? My question is never how much do I fine-tune the degree of an action scene or a scene of violence or a scene with even sex in it. I don't write a lot of sex scenes. Again, something I think my wife believes the world should be grateful for. Um, just, she's always she's always <laughs> nervous when I say, oh, I just wrote a love scene in this book. Um, but uh, uh, but I'm, I'm just looking for drama. I'm just like, okay, where do I get the maximum drama from? Because the maximum drama almost never comes from the most grotesquely descriptive violent passage. I mean, sometimes it can be, but most of the time it's not. That said, um, you know, as, as authors, we are um, constrained by any number of things, including our, you know, our publishers and what our publishers are worried about. And so I've had a lot of occasions, especially, you know, when you, if you write young adult, that's where a lot of things come into play. Um, because while you can have all kinds of grotesque violence in young adult fiction, um, there's a lot of concern when it comes to anything approaching, um, you know, sexual abuse, for example. Um, and in the fifth Spellslinger book, which is called Queenslayer, there was a scene that in the original draft of the book, when I write my first draft of a book, I just, I let it all hang out. Like I'm just, I will go wherever drama takes me because it's much, much easier to rein something in after the fact than it is to try to push it further if you've started with something mediocre. You know, you, you, you have to, it's like a, a, the first, uh, one of the first good acting tips I had when I was a terrible actor 
was, you know, just go so insanely big in in your first couple of rehearsals that it's that it's that it's ridiculous. It's 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 almost embarrassing because you can always pull that back. But if you if you're starting too close, then you can't go anywhere. And so, you know, that that book and that scene that happens in Queenslayer was was a dark and, and, and troubling scene. And I just went back and forth. And it's so funny because my editor at the time said, this is one of the, the, this is the best scene in the whole series. Now we have to change it entirely. Um, and so we just went back and forth. And I took out, and it was such an interesting experience, because I took out a lot of the explicit violence, the explicit sort of moments, um, and reduced it to things that were that were not so explicitly grotesque, but which, because, you know, when you're a writer and you're trying to write for drama, you tend to write viscerally. And so, for example, there's a scene where, there's a moment where literally all that's happening is the character is grabbing this person by the collar and he can feel the buttons split on the collar and he can feel the fabric just starting to tear between his fingers. And it's just that. And, and the editor was troubled by that. Right. Like, uh, and so, so it, it comes down to, it's a very difficult, um, set of waters to navigate. We have this notion now of, you know, people will talk about trigger warnings. I think blessedly we talk about them a little less now than we used to. Um, but if you look at, you know, what actually troubles readers, uh, far more people will be haunted and disturbed and put down your book because you killed a dog. Right than because you committed an incredibly graphic, you know, slaying. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I would. Yeah. So it's, that's, and that's okay, but we all have to just admit that it's not our moral sensibilities that are causing us to sort of, you know, stamp our, you know, stamp our feet or, or pound our fists on the table. It is, it is just the things that happen to, to distress us. Um, and it's okay that those distress us, but you know, so, so with violence, um, I'm again, it's, it's only interesting to me as a, as a, as a component of drama. And that's usually always going to dictate how far I go or don't go with it. Well, where do you, where can you draw that from as a writer? When you, when you talk about uh, the word usage really is what you're, you're talking about there. When you're, you're trying to bring the right amount of drama out to people or excitement, adventure, but at the same time, not overdo it, not be overly graphic. So there's a real art to the word use that you have through the through your each paragraph. How how like where does that come from for you, and how do you decide what that level's at? For me, I, I'm I'm always on a quest to experience. Um, the, I want I want the act of writing to be as much like the act of reading as possible. And so when I'm writing, I'm, I'm trying to write in such a way that I'm experiencing what, what I would experience if I was just reading it for the first time, which is, which sounds inc like either impossible or incredibly complicated, but it's actually quite easy, right? When, when you're sort of in that flow, if you're just letting your imagination go as your fingers are hitting the keyboard, you're, you're often experiencing those things. When I start to feel something is disturbing, for example, I'll go, my first set of feeling will be, okay, I'm on to something because this should be disturbing. I don't want people to think that, you know, some, that, that an act of violence is, is always just, you know, totally fine because it happened to happen with a sword or something. Um, when I start to feel though, oh, I, I feel like I'm in a different novel now. I feel like maybe I'm in one of those, you know, sort of a horror novel, for example. Then, then I'll go. Okay, I've, I'm, I'm sliding off the track. I'm moving the boundary between, you know, between dramatic and let's say salacious, for want of a better word. Um, it's the same. I think it's, it's easier to understand if we imagine writing like a romance scene, right, or, a, or a let's say a sex scene. I don't. Again, I don't write a lot of those. But if you're writing that and you're feeling absolutely nothing, and you're like, okay, well, mechanically, you know, this goes here, and this hand went up. Okay, they've, they've each got two hands, and they've each got, you know. So let's just, this one goes here, this, this one goes here. You would feel like, okay, nothing, this is, this is terrible. Um, but if you were writing and you start to feel like, oh, okay, this is actually kind of arousing, like this scene, then that would be great. And if you start going, hmm, this is really feeling like I'm in a porn movie, then, you know, you've gone too far. <laughs> keep writing. Keep writing. <laughs> right. Keep writing. Keep writing. And just, yeah, just change your, just write under a pseudonym. You know, you have to write, you know, in a, in a very broader non-sexual sense, you have to write what turns you on. Um, 
because otherwise, otherwise, what are you doing? It becomes engineering at that point if if you're not feeling it. So so you're going by feel, and and that's you know there's so much so much discussion of the writing craft these days. So many books, how to write your novel, so many courses, and they are all about the mechanics. Um, and we forget sometimes that you know the act of writing is the is the act of you know putting your own humanity on the page. So you have to just learn to feel it. And that's that's why it's not an easy job. Well, can you always feel that you have to rely on your editors uh, to rein you in a bit? Because I know from time to time, you know, I'll write something and, you know, I'll give it to my wife to, to read uh, as the first reader. And she'll be like, oh, this was good. It was very gory. And I'm like, it was gory? <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't notice, you know, the language that I used or whatever. And I, I kind of sometimes... I guess need that that outside source is is that the same thing for you or can you typically um, navigate that? I think that's usually the only problem for people who for people who are diagnosed as uh, potential psychopaths. So yes, <laughs> yes, but, exactly. But you know, you know, it's uh, but you know, I heard all the stuff about the karate stuff and you know, <laughs> yeah. and you know, you know the old joke, right? You know, what do you call a guy who hangs around with musicians, a drummer? What do you call a yeah, guy exactly. who hangs around with martial artists? Uh, psychopath a black belt in karate um yeah <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna get a lot of bad letters for that um <laughs> there's a lot of people who love karate uh, yeah, and i yeah. respect them um yes. <laughs> yeah i look i rely on on christina my wife as my first reader all the time she is absolutely the one person who can say cut this and i'll cut it no matter what um Usually, as I'm sure you know, we've all encountered, what'll happen? I find with editors, they're very good at saying there's something wrong here, uh, but their solutions are almost are rarely going to be the ones that are exactly right for that writer, even even when they're incredible editors and even when they really know the writer quite well, you know. So so yeah, I re I rely on people saying I feel like there's a problem here, but then I rely on myself to figure out how to navigate out of it. I don't usually have that so much. I think perhaps because I was a fight choreographer for a while. Um, so I, I choreographed sword fights for the theater, um, which, is, which is a great way to learn about story because you often can't rely on the words. You know, in a Shakespeare play, it's often like all this magnificent dialogue and drama, and then in, in the script it goes, they fight. And then, <laughs> and then it's like somebody dies. And so you have to, like, learn how to tell a story through the violence. Um and and I think that's probably my best gauge is um, is if is if is if any particular scene or any particular violence is telling a story inside of it, it'll be very difficult for me to cut that. Uh, it'll be very difficult for me to water that down. Um, but almost universally, my experience has been when someone says that you know it's it's kind of funny you said your wife's reaction. You know when someone says that was great, yeah. It's, yeah, it's really gory. You know, it's like, yeah, that's cool. That's what it was meant to be, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, but if they say, um, yeah, it was, um, yeah, I'm going to go stay with my sister. Um, <laughs> then it's the wrong gory. Mm. You know? And so far, Christina has never said, uh, I'm going to go stay with my sister after your novel. Although, her best friend in uh, Switzerland, when, when she read Night Shadow, which was the sequel to Trader's Blade, uh, and has what I believe is the longest torture scene in fiction, um, said that she was thinking of calling the cops after she read it just to make sure Christina was okay. So it's possible that there was a time I went overboard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, the thing is with Dave, he's writing romance. So. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, it's it, we all know this, right? Like all great literature is about, is about contrast and conflict, right? So if you're writing romance, that's where you need the most number of serial killers and and if you're writing, you know, serial killer fiction, that's where you need just lots of romance and flowers and dates yeah. on yachts. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. Gore is the same. <laughs> so, so now we're talking um, subtext and meaning here now. Um, sometimes it comes organically and sometimes it comes from the writer, uh, you know, a, a thought of something while they're writing it. Um what what is it for you? Is there is there any meaning to the book besides entertainment and pure action? Is there something more you want the reader to take away? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the thing is, if it was only action and entertainment, it would be neither action packed nor entertaining. 
um, because, you know, action is only dramatic when there's something at stake. And the thing that's at stake for a reader is never, you know, the, the handsome prince is trapped in the castle and the daring, uh, princess has to go rescue them. That it's, it's not, they, the reader knows there's no prince in the castle. What's at stake is, um, is all of these characters have said this princess has no business, you know, taking risks or doing whatever else. And so what's at stake is, is that true or not? And, um, and so that, so therefore, you know, uh, like a book without a theme just ultimately isn't entertaining. Um, because you just, there's nothing to, for me anyway, there, there's just no stakes. Cause again, the stakes are not, will the village get destroyed by the dragon? It's, it's, is it true or not that if we all get together and put our prejudices aside, we can, we can save our, our, each other? Because that's the thing you take into your life uh, as, as you leave the book. That said, I am one of those writers where um, I constantly think I know what it is I'm going to be writing about, and I only ever know what, it, what the story I've written was when I hit the end. Um, and Malevolent 7 is a good example of that, actually, because that was a book, as I said, I started out just going, you know what, I'm just going to write whatever I want. It's going to be bombastic. It's going to be fun. It's going to be wild. It's going to be dark. I'm, I'm going to push the boundaries of all the things that I was really not supposed to push when writing a young adult series, and which I wouldn't have wanted to put into a young adult series because it can become distracting from the things that are equally difficult and challenging that you know teenagers actually have to go through in their lives. So I was just like, oh, I'm just going to go wild and have a good time. And by the time I hit the end of the book, I, I realized, like, on the last chapter, I went, oh, God, so that's what I've been writing about all this time. Um, that's why I wrote this book. I was writing a book about, it, like, you know, again, it's a big fantasy romp adventure with magic and all kinds of crazy stuff going on. But at its heart, it's a book about how, in our world, we have decided to break each other apart into good guys and bad guys. And a bad guy or a bad person is anybody who's ever done anything bad. And once you're the bad person, that's it. You know, there's, there's not a lot of room for, uh, for redemption um, unless you're a really, really good-looking celebrity. Um, and, and so what, this, what, I was, what I was realizing was troubling me was, okay, how is that going to work? Like, what happens when... You know, you can be, there, there's kids that are 16 years old now who are convinced that they're just awful, that, that they've, that they've already committed enough moral crimes in their lives that they're unredeemable. And what happens when people grow up thinking that, that they're, you know, and, and what happens again, you know, going back, you know, when you need the firefighter, um, to risk their lives for someone who they've reckoned probably hates them, um, or, 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 or just that, or just feels like has been told so often that they're awful that they don't feel obliged to do anything. And so with this book, I'm starting with these seven characters. And like I say, they're mercenaries, they're sort of anti-heroes and they have convinced themselves that, you know, we're the, we're kind of the bad guys. And you know what? That's just how the world works. But at a certain point, um, you know, they're the only ones available to try and solve this problem that's going to hurt other people. And so I wanted to explore how do you get back from, feeling like you are just, you know, worthless. And because you're worthless, you have no obligation to do anything good for anybody else. How do you start from there make that make those characters human, make them interesting, make them funny, make them lovable in their own ways, um, and then get to a place where where we go, okay, yeah, they've still, you know, they still have problems, but um, but but they're not, but none of us are, are irredeemable. Well, there you go. So there's hope for me yet. No. No, no, not at all. Uh, well, not according to Dave's blog. No. Well, yeah, exactly. well, if I could read, I would read it. And Somebody's read reading that? Well, yeah. Isn't that the best thing about being a writer, though? You no longer have to read anything? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't read anything. People, people, people read ask me to read books. I'm just like, oh, you know, it's. I'm I'm in the middle of writing a book, and whenever I'm writing a book, I just can't read anything else. Exactly. <laughs> Everyone else is garbage. <laughs> I'm the only good writer here. Come on. Do you guys ever find that when you uh, – I am I ask people this a lot now. Sorry, I'm, I've decided this interview is not going where I want. I'm going to be the interviewer now. Okay. Yeah. Um, Alan, David, in, in your work, do you find after you've finished a, a book – uh, and then you set it aside for a few months, um, and then and then you you come to it again after it's been published. 
and you sit down and read it, do you find yourself going, uh, okay, I remember this book. Yeah, it's fine. Or do you find yourself going, holy crap, this thing's amazing. Who wrote this? I want to read everything they write. No, I, I wouldn't no. reread my stuff. It's the worst garbage in the world. Are you kidding? I can't believe people buy this. That's what I say. Yeah, I look at it and say, oh, man, I <laughs> I, I need to go back and edit this. Wow. <laughs> <There you are. laughs> but I guess you know you've grown when you, when you look at it and you go, oh, man, this is just, what did I do? Yeah. Well, how does, how does it change you? But, but how does this change you each time you write a book? Well, I got to say, uh, you know, when I go back and read one of my books after it's published, and so, you know, often the context will be, um, you know, it was copy edited ages ago, and now I'm just doing going through the proofs, which is happening for me right now with a book called Play of Shadows that comes out next year. Or it happens if I'll read, you know, the when I was writing a new, starting a new Great Coat series, you know, I have to read the, the, the previous books, and I'd be reading Tyrant's Throne, which was the last book in there. And I swear to God, I would go... Um, oh my God, this is so great. I love this so much. I wish I knew how to write this. Uh, so I think I don't, I don't grow. I think I just get dumber after I write a book. <laughs> so, oh, so each time you, you go through that experience and put something out, you lose. Something. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I, there's, there's just a certain, you know, I, I keep trying to be the guy, you know, I, I, I think, I so admire like the pulp writers and I keep trying to be the guy who just goes, "Ah, it's just a book. I sit down and I, I just write whatever I feel like. And I don't think about it twice, you know? Um, and, but it never works for me. I always have to find something. Um, and as you, you know, you asked about like the growing process and that's kind of, that is in a way is for me, what writing a novel is. It's why I think everybody should write a novel because um, it's a chance to explore something and and kind of create a bridge between yourself and and the world as you see it. So you know, people always ask writers, you know, novelists especially, you know, like where do you get your ideas from? And you know, we all have our different gags that we use when asked that. But but the more honest answer for me is, you know, my ideas come from the gap between what I feel inside and what I see in the world. I will I will have a set of beliefs about things, and then I see the world, and it doesn't conform to those. And so I go, how the hell do I reconcile that? And, and so I'll think of a character who is, you know, experiencing that same sort of similar angst to me or, or perhaps the opposite. Um, and then, and then you sort of start writing and you start exploring. And then by the time you're done, no matter what happens with the book, I've written, I've written novels every year. I'll write, you know, maybe three novels. Um, and almost one of them will usually be one that I'm, Probably, will probably never be published. Um, but it doesn't matter because that novel will be, will be the way that I f- found out how to make peace with the world about whatever that issue happened to be. And that's the book about sex and violence. Yes. That's, that's, <laughs> that's the 16-volume that's the erotic adventures. Of, yeah, of the, one, the one the wife says, no, no, don't, don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> Are we worried about don't Utah again? Oh, no, not at all. I'm, I, they know I'm not worried about 16, them. 16 volume Otter Erotica series. That's the next big project. Uh, Fantastic. Yeah, I was hoping to recruit the I, two of you to come on board with that. You know, I'd love yeah. to, but I, I'm just such a, I'm a prim and proper girl. I could never <laughs> do such things. I don't know. Such um, a prude. The otters, the yeah, otters are also prude. serial killers. <laughs> <laughs> now it's starting to get interesting. Yeah. But you no. Know, um, well, listen. Um, so, how, how are how are readers and people and fans going to find you? Is are you at a local bar? Or do you have like a website? Do you have social media? You know, hookup apps. Like, where do people find Sebastian? I don't have a, a Tinder or Grinder profile, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be that, although although come on, is this not? Well, uh, have we not just stumbled upon one of the great author marketing concepts of all time? <laughs> Only way to reach an author and talk about the books and find out about their books is on like Tinder or Grinder. I think so. Mm. Let's face it, Facebook is for you know very baby aging people, and yeah, yeah, Twitter is for robots and Elon Musk. Uh, you know, maybe we got, it, it. It hasn't always been the case of of all of these platforms that they just get invaded by like an alien um, species that propagates. 
what yeah let's make novelists the weird alien species that propagates onto like you know the worst platforms i have a i have a good friend who's a who's a plumber and i was you know he's always you know expanding and i was like you know you got to get an only fans page <laughs> <laughs> you know i know an author that did that but i'm not saying any names well but, but in, in, in in my case in my drab case so the best way to reach me is my website which is <laughs> decastel.com d e c a s t e l l.com I'm super easy to find on Google. If you even misspell Sebastian de Castell, you will you will likely find me uh, there or on some police blotter somewhere. Um, I'm on uh, Twitter is at de Castell, and um, I'm on Facebook. But again, really, who's on Facebook? Um, and uh, yeah, and I'm you know I do events. I'm doing an event here in Vancouver on the 16th of May, so tomorrow. Um, holy crap! I gotta get ready for that. Uh, yeah. And, um, yeah. And I'm doing something with uh, the Saskatoon uh, McNally Robinson. And then I'm off to England to do a bunch of events. And uh, yeah, I'm always around. And I reply to all uh, reader mail, even when it's angry and bitter. So, you know, David, your, your reply is, is coming soon, I promise. Oh, perfect. <laughs> well, that's nice of you. That's, uh, that's important. Yeah. I think it's good to stay in touch with people that follow you um, no matter what. Yeah. It's, 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 a, it's a good thing. So, and, and so you, you, you like these events? Do you like going to these, um, these events and, and shows and, and book signings and all that? Do you, do you really kind of enjoy that? I do. I, I just like meeting people that, you know, I, I never sort of think of readers as, as fans per se. I mean, they're, they're fans of a book. They're not so much fans of me, because obviously <laughs> yeah. if they knew yeah. who I was, you know. Um, but, but I, but, you know, when someone is a huge fan of a book, and this was especially true for the Great Coats novels, um, but I think is also true for Malevolent 7, this latest one, um, is that what it really means is that what I was connecting to, what I'm writing about, what I'm sort of exploring is something that they're also tuned into. And so it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like being two people that like the Cleveland Barons hockey team, you know, and like there can't be very many of those. And so when you meet one, you're like, wow, this is so great. That was a deep cut, eh, the Cleveland Barons? <laughs> I was going to say, oh, Wow. Wow, what are you trying to say? Someone's going to be hurt. <laughs> I just, I can't even remember when they stopped being a hockey team. I can't even remember them. So it's just, it's all a blur. They just had a good logo. Well, <laughs> I was a little kid. I, I judged hockey teams by their logos. Well, what else can you? Exactly. Why do you how do you think the Pittsburgh Penguins have been around so long? <laughs> well, see, we're not going to get into this. This is terrible. Anyway, um, we've had uh, an enjoyable time here. Uh, the author's got a new book out, of course, Mr. Sebastian De, De Castell. So thank you for being here. We really enjoy it. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Sebastian. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This is the introduction of something with media. I'll be back. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.